You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. So the city of Somerville did a thing. Somerville, Massachusetts, population 82,000, winner of the Best American City Award in 1972, 2009, and 2015, suburb of Boston, on the Mystic River, but not the setting of Mystic Pizza, the 1988 romantic comedy starring Julia Roberts that's set in Mystic, Connecticut. I looked it up. Anyway, Somerville did a thing earlier this month that I probably should have paused to note here on this thing I do, this podcast thing. The Somerville City Council revised its domestic partnership law to cover polyamorous families. Polytriads, quads, quints. Under its new domestic partnership ordinance, the New York Times reported earlier this month, the city of Somerville now grants polyamorous groups the rights held by spouses in marriage, such as the right to confer health insurance benefits or make hospital visits. Before we get to the inevitable, predictable right-wing freakout, which got a lot less traction than it would have if it weren't for COVID, Trump, the worldwide movement to fight anti-black police brutality, the climate catastrophe, and Nicki Minaj's pregnancy, and the way all of this shit kind of puts everything into perspective. I want to highlight first just how stupid it is that so many people are dependent on their romantic partners for health care, for health insurance. It's almost as dumb as getting health insurance through your employer because you could lose your job right when you need health care most, like say, during an economic crisis kicked off by a worldwide pandemic that could put you in the hospital? Like jobs, relationships sometimes end. Sometimes they need to end. And I don't know how many people I've spoken to over the years who needed to get out of a shitty relationship but couldn't because they were on their shitty partner's health insurance and needed health care. Don't know how many, but it is a large number. I have also spoken to countless good and kind people who needed to end shitty relationships but didn't want to because their partners, however shitty they might be, were going to lose their health insurance coverage if they dumped them. And it's no accident that it works this way. However, our employer-based health insurance system got started, something about World War II and wage freezes, it's complicated. Anyway, however this broken system of ours got started, as it functions now, Republicans, conservatives, employers love it because it gives employers tremendous power over employees. People remain in jobs they hate, sometimes working for people they hate, because they're terrified of losing their health insurance. Health insurance, health coverage, health care, it is mentioned eight times in the New York Times piece about Somerville granting polytriad, quads, quints, etc., some of the same rights married couples enjoy. It seems to be, in my reading of all the news stories about Somerville, the chief reason the Somerville City Council took this action there are people in committed poly relationships who don't have health care, who would have it if they were in committed relationships with just one other person. So it's only fair that the laws be changed to make sure poly people can get health care in the same broken, fucked up way that other people get health care. Seems to me that if conservatives want to remove one of the chief arguments in favor of recognizing poly relationships, at least based on this New York Times article, which was also one of the chief arguments made during the fight for marriage equality for same-sex couples – they would insist on making healthcare an individual right, not tying it to employment or marital status. But that presents a real conundrum for conservatives because they like a system that gives employers unchecked power, 
just as much as they like a system that traps people in unrewarding relationships. Anyway, a lot of the freakout that I saw from the right about Somerville's first-of-its-kind legislation was about how legalizing gay marriage, recognizing gay relationships, put us on this slippery slope that we are now careening down toward recognizing poly relationships. And that may be true. It's not that there are no rules now or that we didn't want rules at all, but we did ask for people to think more expansively about what love is and what love can be and what commitment looks like and what families can look like. And here we are, Somerville. I'm happy to be here in Somerville. I'd like everywhere to be Somerville. But the most hilarious and eerily familiar argument freak out from the right was how Somerville and other cities that might follow its lead would wind up creating polyamory or creating polyamorous relationships by normalizing or popularizing them. And it's undeniably true that the marriage equality movement began with a liberal city, San Francisco, creating a domestic partnership registry for same-sex couples in 1982, which San Francisco's mayor, Diane Feinstein, at the time vetoed to appease the Catholic Church. But domestic partnership registries didn't call gay couples into existence. San Francisco finally got its domestic partnership law on the books to stay in 1990. No, the existence of gay relationships and gay couples made the need for domestic partnerships clear, particularly in the wake of the HIV-AIDS crisis. And many early domestic partnerships were just registries that actually didn't confer any rights on the couple, only recognition. I actually entered into a domestic partnership with my boyfriend at the time in Madison, Wisconsin in 1991, and it granted us no rights. It was literally a piece of paper that said, okay, so there you are, a same-sex couple in Wisconsin of all places. Good luck, you two. Now, for ages, social and religious conservatives believed that denying rights to gay people was important because denying rights to gay people would somehow prevent gay people from gaying. If they could prevent us from forming relationships by throwing legal and social obstacles in our paths, we wouldn't exist in a public way. Oh, we could and we did have sex back when we couldn't exist publicly. And the leaders and spokes assholes at the time for religious right organizations then didn't really object to gay sex all that strenuously. So long as it was furtive, because it was criminalized, so long as it was stigmatized and anonymous, they were kind of okay with it. So long as we gay people had the decency to feel bad about being gay and keep it hidden and refrain from forming lasting relationships because – Life partners, unlike anonymous sex partners, are impossible to hide effectively. The religious bigots who ran the world were willing to tolerate gay people having anonymous sex in bushes and bathhouses and the bathrooms of a few squalid mob-run gay bars. Some religious conservatives were so okay with anonymous gay sex that they regularly dropped by those bathhouses to have some of it for themselves. It was gay relationships they opposed, two men or two women living together because that made it impossible for straight religious conservatives to pretend gay people didn't exist or to keep their children who might be gay from realizing that they weren't the only ones. Poly relationships now have a leg up on gay relationships. Then they're not legally recognized outside of Somerville, but they're not crimes. You can't get arrested for having more than one romantic partner. And just like same sex marriage legal now in all 50 States, just as same sex sex is also legal now in all 50 States. The law that Somerville passed isn't creating social change where poly relationships are concerned. It's recognizing social change that has already happened. Poly relationships didn't magically appear in Somerville this month after the law was passed, just as gay couples didn't magically appear in the United States after Windsor and Obergefell, the Supreme Court decisions that legalized same-sex marriage in the United States. 
continuing to deny legal recognition to committed poly relationships, which exist and have always existed. It's actually a relationship model that has existed in more and less problematic forms since the dawn of humanity. Denying legal recognition to committed poly relationships isn't going to prevent people from entering into them any more than denying legal recognition to gay couples prevented us from entering into same-sex relationships. Poly people, poly relationships exist. They shouldn't have to hide just as we shouldn't have had to hide and they should be protected under the law. And health insurance should be a right. All right, coming up on today's show on the Micro Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and joining me on the Magnum, which you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com. More questions, more guests, no ads. Dr. Justin Lay Miller joins us. He's back to celebrate the paperback release of his terrific book, Tell Me What You Want. Takes a few of your questions. We bat them around together. That's on the Magnum. All coming up on today's show. Hi, Dan. I'm a 30-something cis bisexual male calling from the Midwest, and I wanted to share my quarantine sex story with you. My boyfriend and I have been dating for about a year, and while we don't live together, we have been exclusively seeing each other during quarantine. I showed up at his apartment uh, the other night and walked in to complete silence and no one to be seen. I looked towards the bedroom door and saw a makeshift cardboard wall taped up to the side with a hole cut out in the middle uh, and a cloth over that. So I sauntered over and a finger reached out from the hole and directed me to drop my pants. I removed my pants and proceeded to receive an unbelievable glory hole blowjob from my boyfriend. We attempted to have sex through the glory hole, but the cardboard wasn't quite strong enough. Um, but it was one of the best blowjobs I've ever received. And we have made use of that makeshift cardboard glory hole wall a couple of times since. Um, but thought that it was a really fun way to mix things up after having a lot of sex during quarantine and finding a new way to keep it interesting. Thank you for calling in and sharing your quarantine and sex success story. Just two things. Sauntered, sauntering. That's a word more people should use. I love that word. And you say you tried to have sex through that glory hole but couldn't, but you got the most amazing blowjob. So indeed, you did have sex through that glory hole. You just didn't have anal intercourse through that glory hole. Sorry to be pedantic about this, but it's one of my little pet peeves when people suggest that oral sex ain't sex, even though sex is oral sex's last name. If you'd like to call in and share your quarantine or sex success story, please do, and we might share it at the top of next week's podcast. Hey, Dan Savage. I'm in a relationship with a guy that I've been in for about a year. He lives with his best friend who has been around for about eight years or so. And the last couple of months, I've just noticed their relationship is a little bit too intimate, in my opinion. Um, there's a lot of ass grabbing. There's a lot of awkward hugging. There was also a couple of times where his roommate would insinuate some things towards me when he was drinking as far as him never being with a guy or the things that he thought about doing with a guy. And it just made me feel very uncomfortable. So I have confronted my partner about this multiple times. Um, it always leads to an argument. So we have resorted to some sort of counseling because of that. Um, but I just feel like it's hard for me to trust my partner when his roommate is 
throwing these sexual provocative things towards me and my my partner. So I feel like the counseling is going to be good for us, but I don't know what I should do about said roommate. I'm at a point to where I wanted to just say fuck it all and break up with them because of this, because this is the only reason that's bringing controversy into this relationship. So I'm kind of wondering, like, what do I do? Do I, should I confront this guy? Should I tell him to keep his fucking hands to himself and his words with him being a friend of his for eight years? And we've been dating for about a year. I kind of feel like, you know, that friendship is held at a higher stature than what we have. So I don't want it to be much of a controversy, but at the same time, I don't know what the hell to do. So your boyfriend has known and been friends with and lived with this guy for eight years. And the guy isn't gay. You don't say he's straight, but you say he's never been with a man. But he's touchy-feely, grabby, insinuating in ways with you that make you uncomfortable and in ways with your boyfriend that make you feel very uncomfortable. Well, obviously, there's something there. There's something to this relationship. It sounds like they have an intimate friendship and a romantic friendship. And that is indeed sometimes a thing. And maybe your boyfriend relied on this guy for a great deal of emotional intimacy when he was single, when he didn't have someone in his life that could give him the whole package, the sex and the intimacy and the romance. A quick digression about emotional intimacy. It can definitely be a problem when your romantic and intimate partner has a romantic-ish friendship, an intimate connection with someone else that rivals or supplants yours. But often people make a problem out of a romantic or intimate relationship, a romantic friendship or intimate connection with someone else, their partner's romantic or intimate connection with someone else, because we have these unrealistic expectations about relationships. And one of those unrealistic expectations is that I should be all things to my boyfriend or my husband, that I should provide him with all intimacy, friendship. I should be his best friend and his lover, and he shouldn't need to turn to anyone else or any sort of emotional support. That puts a lot of strain on a relationship to have to be all things to someone else. And also, realistically, we can't be all things to someone else. And our partners sometimes need the emotional support, the, the friendly, which some people can misinterpret as romantic attentions of other people in their lives, of other friends. They need those connections. But we have this culture that tells us that you know our romantic partner or our spouse we should be all things to that person and that person should be all things to us. And if we perceive that they're getting anything from anybody else that they ought to be getting from us, that that's a problem. I would warn you to be on your guard against that. What you describe sounds out of control, out of hand, kind of not what I'm talking about, but I've seen people exaggerate what it is that they're witnessing and claim that their boyfriend is neglecting them or having an emotional affair with someone else when all their boyfriend is guilty of is having a fucking friend who doesn't happen to be you and you want your boyfriend to have friends who aren't you. And it's fine for your boyfriend to have some friends that maybe you don't get along with and that he hangs out with when you're not around and vice versa. You should also have those relationships and those kinds of friendships and get that kind of emotional support from elsewhere. You kind of face a choice here between demanding your boyfriend eject his roommate from his life, from his affections establish some healthy boundaries or demand that your boyfriend or get your boyfriend gradually to ease this guy out of his life. And you do that by 
sticking it out by putting up with it. I mean, establishing boundaries. If you don't want him touching you or saying creepy shit to you, you should say that and he should stop. And if he doesn't stop and your boyfriend claims to love you and he sides with the roommate, well, then your boyfriend doesn't love you and the boyfriend will have to go. But you can ask him to stop and then stick around. And if he stops, great. And you can't police their behavior when they're alone together without you. Of course, but if he's able to be respectful of you, your personal space, your feelings, and knock off the grabby and the insinuations when you are around, all right, then stick around and eventually you'll become more and more important to your boyfriend. Hopefully more intimacy will grow, romance will grow, and maybe then at some point you'll move in with your boyfriend and he'll move out uh, of the apartment that he shares with his creepy, maybe closeted, touchy-feely, grabby roommate. And you will have supplanted the roommate and he will diminish in importance and you will see him getting smaller and smaller in the interpersonal relationship rearview mirror. But that requires you to have patience and to put up with this guy's presence, if not his shit. Don't put up with his shit, but you might have to put up with his presence. And the only way to figure out whether that'll be worth it is to ask yourself if this guy that you're dating is worth that kind of long game. And if he is, maybe you play it. And if he's not, well, then you end it. Hi, Dan. I am a queer poly person. I am married and I have a committed partner. And basically, I just found out recently that my husband was on a first date with somebody and things kind of went all the way and they didn't use protection. And of course, like we haven't slept together since, I mean, I guess not, of course. So we haven't slept together since then. So that's fine. But I kind of don't know, like, we've been doing this for like six years and I don't know, like, I I don't know how to like reconcile, like I'm in new compromise. So like, I'm really particularly careful with like physical safety and he got tested, of course, like right away and she won't get tested and feel slut shamed by asking and I know it's a lot to ask. I guess I don't know her. She could be anybody. I guess that's why I'm so surprised that like they hooked up on the first date, especially with like the COVID stuff. I don't know. I just feel it feels like one of those situations where once you screw the pooch, it's done, right? Is that is that the situation? I don't know if it's done. There are certainly couples out there whose relationships survived similar betrayals, similar violations, and they worked through it and got past it. So the question isn't whether or not this is done. The question is whether it's worth working on, whether you're willing to go see a couple's counselor together, whether you're ever able again to feel safe with him. He behaved in a tremendously reckless manner with disregard for your health and your safety, and not just your emotional health and safety, but your physical health and safety. You say you are immunocompromised, which is one of the reasons you are very, very careful about outside sexual contacts and have a condom rule, which isn't setting the bar too terribly high or asking too much from your husband. That's a condition of our having an open relationship. You do have to use condoms with randos. And this woman is the ultimate definition of a rando. This is a first date. He knows nothing of this woman or how trustworthy she is when she claims to be disease-free, if indeed she is disease-free. And this woman... She doesn't owe you anything. She doesn't owe your husband anything. If she doesn't want to get tested, if she feels that she was asked to be tested in a rude or shaming way because you guys were rude or you shamed her or because she's reacting defensively, 
she isn't obligated to go get tested. Your husband, however, all the obligations to make this up to you, to make it right, to convince you that this can work again, whether you guys continue on in an open relationship or close it back up until you feel like you can trust him with the hall pass again, all of that's on him. He needs to get tested. You say he did get tested. Great. We'll see what those results are when they come back. He also needs to be tested and pushed and confronted by a couple's counselor with you in the room. People make mistakes in the heat of the moment. People get carried away. People think with their crotches and not just people with penises. Everybody is capable of fucking up in a spectacular way and betraying their partner and doing something stupid and that they regret. And sometimes after we do something incredibly stupid and that we regret very much, the takeaway isn't, I will do that again. I'll get away with that again. Did that once and the relationship survived. So obviously you can do that again. Sometimes people tiptoe up to that precipice, stare into the abyss and learn their fuck and jump into the abyss a little bit, maybe bungee jump, come right back out and learn their fucking lesson and never do that fucking shitty thing again because they see what they risk and they carry that scalding lesson with them forever into all of their future sexual encounters. They know not to do X because X, when they did it that one time, almost burned down their life with the life they shared with their partner. If indeed their partner is still there. And that is the question that's up in the air right now. Are you still going to be there? And I can't fix that for you. And I can't answer that question, whether you're done or not today, that's a decision you're going to have to make. And that decision will be informed by what you see from him in counseling. Once you get past the tap dancing and the abject apologies and you get to the root of what was going on here. And, you know, sometimes people want to attach deeper meaning or significance. You know, at the ultimate root of what was going on here, the reason he did this is he has intimacy issues because his parents, no, 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 no. He was horny and in the moment and did something colossally stupid and stopped thinking and wasn't taking you into consideration. That's what's at the root of this, how bad he feels about it, how sincere his apology and his desire to make it up to you and make it right. That's what you need to glean before you can make your decision about whether you're done with him or not. It's going to take some time and you can make this call right now. Is it worth it? Do you derive enough pleasure, joy, and satisfaction from this marriage and from being in relationship with him to do the work with him that needs to be done to save the marriage? And if the answer to that question is no, then yeah, it's done. But if you would like to stay with him, well, then Get thee to a couple's counselor. Get the both of your asses to a couple's counselor. Go. And soon, three to six months, you'll know whether you want to stick around. You'll know for sure whether you're done or not. Hi, Dan. Long-time listener here from Australia. So I'm a size queen. It's really, really easy for me to have a hands-free orgasm from penetrative, from penetrative sex um, if the guy's really well endowed. That's not to say that I haven't had really powerful orgasms with dudes I've dated with small dicks, and I'm certainly not shaming people with small dicks, but my body really responds to length. I'm curious if you can speak with a professional that can advise on this. If I was to get like a yoni egg, which is like a polished round egg stone sort of thing that you put in your vagina. Um, if I was to put that in myself or a, an equivalent shape 
and then get a guy to fuck me, would the impact of his penis hitting that object and then in turn hitting me, do you think that that would feel the same as just having a regular long dick? Is that a safe thing to do? Are there any experts that you know that have maybe a bit of knowledge on this particular subject or has any listener ever done it either? I could perhaps call in an expert or two, but I'm just going to go out on a limb here and declare this a bad idea that will not work. It's the kind of thing that if it did work, I probably would have heard about it by now, 30 years into this. Some people like length. Some people really like some women, some people with vaginas and uteruses like that feeling of the cervix getting banged around by an extra long dick. And if it was just a matter of shoving a yoni egg or a Benoit ball up your vagina to recreate that sensation with shorter dicked men, I think I would have heard about it by now. As a dick haver though myself, I have to say that if you put that egg in your vaginal canal and the guy is hard and excited and wants to have sex with you, he's not going to be hard or excited about having sex for you for long once his dick starts slamming into the egg sometimes jade, sometimes made of marble, sometimes steel, that you've jammed up your vaginal canal. There are other ways to turn a short-dicked man into a long-dicked man. Not to shame the short-dicked guys. Dicks of all shapes and sizes. I am a fan. Some people like girth. Some people really dig length. And some people it's not relevant. Some people actually prefer smaller or narrower to each his own. You like them big and you like them long. If you're with somebody and it's a one night stand or whatever, and it hasn't turned into a relationship, you say you've enjoyed guys with smaller dicks and had orgasms with guys with average dicks. And that's great. You should keep doing that. If you wind up in a romantic relationship with somebody, a long term, particularly sexually exclusive romantic relationship with someone who doesn't have the length that slams your cervix in the way that you like to have your cervix slammed, and that person is secure enough to have a conversation about supplements, there are supplements out there. There are things called cock sheaths. That's cock sheath. You can wear them on your dick. It's basically kind of a cock ring with a dildo attached to it. Some of them, the guy's dick goes inside. It's hollow. It's a hollow dildo, and you wear it on your dick, and you can suddenly have a big dick. Everybody can have a big dick for as long as they'd like to have a big dick. You can have a giant dick temporarily if you'd like to have a giant dick. In addition to the ones that are sort of hollow dildos that the cock goes inside, there are ones that have like sort of a cock ring and then a dildo that has a divot in it that the guy's dick can rest inside and he can fuck you with that and it can be a little longer. He gets all the sensations of intercourse and can provide you every once in a while as a treat with the big dick dicking that you miss because you chose to be with him and you enjoy his dick and you have orgasms on his dick and everything. But every once in a while he can slam it home for you. If he's secure enough to wear a cock sheath and enjoy a cock sheath and enjoy what a cock sheath can do for his girlfriend. Hi, Dan. I'm a cisgender straight female who's been dating a guy, actually dating on the phone a couple of weeks and just met him and really, really liked him a couple of days ago. Anyway, I have a question about talking to a new partner about their sexual preference. Something about him, or maybe it's the the comments he makes, just make me think that he might be interested in both sexes. And I just want to know, how do you ask someone that? And when is it appropriate to ask? We are not sexual yet or haven't been. 
but I am interested in sex with him. So I would also like him to know that that's something that I'm open to. You could ask him a direct question. Hey, are you bi? Or considering you haven't met yet, you're still early in this relationship, you could go on on a much sturdier and safer limb and just make an I statement when you guys are sharing information about your sexual lives or histories in advance of actually getting together and initiating the sexual relationship. You could just toss out there, I've always been attracted to bi guys. That's not you saying, hey, are you bi? That's you stating a fact about yourself. You're not asking him a question. It's possible he's dropped these hints. Maybe it's clipful thinking on your part. Maybe he hasn't dropped hints because you'd be very into him being bi and he said a few things that were vague or perhaps open to that interpretation and clipful thinking. That's where your head went. But it's also possible that he's legitimately dropping hints and afraid to just say it. And he's testing the waters. A lot of sort of straight identified, straight presenting, straight default or straight assumed guys out there who are actually bisexual have been rejected by women, by potential female romantic partners who can't deal, who aren't into it, who aren't you. And rather than risk outright rejection so early on in the relationship, you haven't even met in person yet, he's dropped a hint or two to see how you might react because he's working up the courage to come out to you Maybe, maybe that's what's going on. I think the quickest way, you know, if you ask him, are you bi? He might think you're not into it. He might think that that's a problem for you, that you're busting him. But if you say, I've always been into bi guys, it's just a statement of fact. And then it turns out he is actually bi. He will let you know, probably in that instant, probably right the fuck away. So I statements, I statements, I statements. They're always so helpful. I'm also a fan of the direct question. But sometimes the I statement is the way to go. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at risk youth. I am turning 30 tomorrow. I'm a cisgendered female living in the South. And my question is simple. I don't think I yet fully understand my sexuality and whom I'm attracted to. I have been primarily or only rather with men, but I don't think that I'm not attracted to women and I'm still kind of just figuring it out and my question is is 30 too late to be figuring all this out I am an entire adult human older than you are I am an entire adult human who could own a car have bought a house already have kids older than you are and there are still things about my sexuality that I am figuring out that I have been discovering even at my advanced age. So yeah, 30 is not too late. 30 is certainly not too late to be figuring out who you are sexually. You've had a lot of straight sex. You've had boyfriends. Maybe you're into women too. If you're asking yourself that question, then of course it's possible that you are into women and you might want to put yourself out there and find one and date her. Sometimes the hesitation with people who, women particularly who've been straight identified all their lives and only had opposite sex partners, male partners all their lives, when they're interested in dating other women or having sex with another woman, they have this anxiety that, you know, they're going to be rejected by all the lesbians, all the mean ass lesbians out there in the world who aren't into bi women, who shame bi women, who don't want to be the piece on the side of some woman, don't, don't want to be somebody's experiment. To them, I say, to women like you who have that nervous anxiety about putting yourself out there, I say, there are a lot more 
bi curious so far in their lives straight identified women out there than there are actual lesbians so rather than seeking out a lesbian seek out another woman in your shoes seek out another woman who's experimenting and exploring and isn't sure and still has questions about her sexuality or sexual orientation whether she's biromantic bisexual heteroromantic heteroflexible whatever it might be you can find another woman like you you are likelier to find another woman like you out there because there are more women like you out there than there are lesbians out there. But no, of course, 30 is not too late. And if you tell yourself 30 is too late, well, then you're just going to be asking the same question when you're 35 or when you're 40 or when you're 45. Get out there. Have an experience. See how you like it. Maybe you'll get a definitive answer, a final answer that first time, or maybe you'll still be figuring it out, still be asking yourself these questions for the rest of your life. But if asking yourself these questions prompts you to have adventures and experiences and learn more and experiment more and experience more throughout your life, well, then maybe it's better that we never know the answer ultimately. Hey, Dan, I'm calling with a COVID unloved story. Long story short, I developed feelings for a coworker that's married that I also have a lot of friend circles with, yada, 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 that old cliche. Um, Developed really strong feelings for him, and then COVID hit, and I suddenly don't see him anymore because of the social distancing rules. And it kind of felt like a breakup. It kind of felt like he was being ripped out of my life and I, I didn't expect to have to grieve someone. And then now that COVID has been here, I've had time to really sit and think and process through my feelings for him and the best methods of getting away from him so that I don't make any mistakes. And I think that now that we're entering phase two in King County, I'm worried about what it's going to feel like to spend more time around him. And I I just want to approach it cautiously with a level head and don't really have many social opportunities to bounce these things off of friends at bars, yada, yada, yada. I feel stuck and I live in a studio apartment by myself. So I thought I'd reach out. You may not have to worry about heading into phase two because so many people are out there being reckless idiots right now that some places that have gone into phase two or phase three of reopening are reverting to phase one and phase zero and shutting shit back down again. So you may not face the problem of having to face your coworker that you have this longstanding crush on again anytime soon. That said, you're single, they're partnered, you have a crush on them. People talk about crushes in in a weird way, as if you can't have more than one at a time, as if some subsequent or future crush can't supplant the problematic, if it's a problem, crush that you are having right now. People talk about crushes like they're, I don't know, giant turds that have to work their way fully through your system before you can take some other shit. Not true. And sometimes when you have a problematic or impossible crush, like on a coworker who has no interest in being sexual with you or whose life you could destroy because they're tempted to be sexual with you and they shouldn't be by opening up to them about your crush or acting on it together with them and with their consent, but in violation of their vows, 
yes, sometimes you just have to wait that out and, and stuff it down. And waiting it out and stuffing it down is easier if you are opening yourself up to other people in your orbit, in your life, out there in the world, maybe online right now because getting out there in the world, like you said, you can't go to bars, isn't possible, but there are tons of people who are doing online dating right now. If you can find someone else who sparks in you the same feelings that your coworker sparked in you and then fan that ember, you know, that spark that somebody else gives you, pay attention to that, fan that instead of obsessing about your coworker. And now I'm going to get myself in a little bit of trouble. I don't always think acting on a crush on someone who is married to someone else is a problem. Of course, there are married people in open relationships. There are also married people who are trapped in shitty marriages, shitty relationships that they can't exit because their partner is dependent on them financially or they're dependent on their partner financially or they have kids together and just the stresses and strains of daily life, particularly right now, make exiting the relationship impossible. And sometimes those people are doing what they need to do to stay married and stay sane and that can mean an affair. And as long as you as the affair partner in a situation like that where someone is doing what they need to do to stay married and stay sane and they want to stay married, so long as you as the affair partner know that you are playing a kind of utilitarian role in that person's life and you can keep your romantic expectations in check, it can really be God's work to be the person who helped that person stay married and stay sane. And sometimes someone does what they need to do. They cheat. They break their vows. They do what they need to do to stay married and stay sane. And a few years later, the affair is over and the marriage, maybe some stressors are relieved or the kids get a little bit older uh, or they reconnect. Somehow the marriage revives and everyone's happier for the marriage to, to still be in the marriage, including the person who cheated and hopefully kept their mouth shut and stayed safe. And the person who cheated on who may be none the wiser or maybe knew and just didn't want to ask any questions and it was an unspoken DADT thing. To be that person. See, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is I don't think it's always terrible to be the person who has a crush on someone who's married to someone else or even acts on that. But in the absence of any information about this dude's marriage or any indication from this dude that he is interested in any way for you to assess whether this is a – legit and I think permissible, do what you need to do to stay married and stay sane situation, or he's just a cheating piece of shit and a serial adulterer that you wouldn't want to get mixed up with, absent that kind of information, I don't think that you should act on this crush. Go find some other crush, maybe masturbate about this guy a little bit here and there, and keep it to yourself. Hi, Dan. Um, I am a woman in my early 30s calling from the Southwest. I have been talking to a man online. We start talking about what it is, you know, that we're into. Um, and he was asking me about how I would feel about any kind of like racial humiliation stuff. Um, I'm a white woman. He's a black man. Um, I don't like date black men exclusively. I tend to date across the racial spectrum. Um, he did tell me he mostly dates and sleeps with white women. And he's really into, for example, being called the N-word during sex and different kind of humiliating sort of games around that. And I can't think of anything less of a turn on for me than that. So that, you know, just told him we weren't really compatible there, but I'm just really curious if that's like a common thing, how white people should be 
handling things like that. Um, this was a first for me. The only thing I feel like I could really compare it to is like the idea of women being into like rape fantasies or whatever. So yeah, I guess I just was really curious about that. If you had any insight about that kind of kink, you know, I don't want to kink shame anyone, but I also wonder like what that's about. Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Dr. Justin Leigh Miller, research fellow at the Kinsey Institute, author of the terrific book, Tell Me What You Want, which was just released in paperback. Welcome back to the show, Dr. Leigh Miller. How are you doing? We're doing well. Thanks for having me, Dan. Uh, thank you for coming back. Before before we dive into this question, I just want to remind everyone that we recently had Blackson, a queer BDSM educator who uh, you can find on Instagram at Kinky Black Educator on, and we tackled this very question of basically race play during Dom Sub Saxon, whether it's all right. So Justin and I, both white guys, you can't see us, but there it's out there. We're both white guys. Uh, we're adding to that conversation, not hijacking it. So Justin, did race play come up in your book about the things that turn people on, the different things that turn people on? In the book, I talk about the role of race in sexual fantasies, such as the race of the partners that people tend to fantasize about. But in terms of the subject of race play, that didn't actually come up at all on the survey that I conducted. I asked more than 4,000 adults to report on their favorite sexual fantasy of all time, and I can't recall a single instance of race play emerging there. So that's not to say that this isn't a sexual fantasy that people have. Certainly some people do, but it just doesn't appear to be a particularly common one. When I talked about this with Blackson, I mentioned that it's often the case that when I hear, when I get this question, this is what I said to Blackson, when I get this question, it's not from a black person who's offended that a white person wanted to engage in this kind of race play, you know, use the N word insultingly during sex in an erotic context. It's the white person who's calling me because a black person asked them to do that. And the white person is uncomfortable with it. And that's exactly what this question is here. The caller is a white woman and she is not comfortable with what she's being asked to do by a, a black partner. Use the N word during sex. She's not comfortable with that. She doesn't have to do it, of course, but I think it's so, telling maybe just black people don't call me when they have a question that could be it it could be a sample problem but it's kind of telling that when this comes up it is not the white person's fantasy to sling the n-word around yeah and i think that that is consistent with the very limited research that i've seen on this subject race play is one of those things where there just hasn't been a whole lot of academic or or scientific attention to it but the limited work that does exist suggests that it tends to make a lot of people very uncomfortable and especially uh, members of the majority group because this is really something that they are not supposed to do. You know, we've gotten all of these messages for a very long time about things that we are and are not allowed to say and the problems associated with racism. And so I think that that is really where a lot of this discomfort stems from. And in fact, even within the BDSM community, this tends to be considered a form of edge play because it is really flirting with the ultimate taboos. And even in the BDSM community, where they're very sex positive and very reluctant to kink shame, a lot of people just aren't willing to even go there. You, you mentioned things we are you know, not allowed to say or do. Often, you know, not for all, but for many, those are the, the things that then we're interested in sexually or become interested in sexually, that you're not allowed. What's taboo or what's transgressive is often what our erotic imaginations seize on. Sure, and it is definitely the case that 
when we're told that we're not supposed to do something, that often makes us want to do it even more. This is something that the uh, sex therapist Jack Moran has referred to as the erotic equation, which is attraction plus obstacles equals excitement. But really the key for something that is taboo to become a turn-on is that there has to be at least a little bit of attraction to that idea in the first place. And then you have this obstacle that is put up that makes you want to do or try that even more. So that might be kind of what's going on here is that maybe there just isn't any interest in exploring this erotically in the first place. And so the fact that it's a taboo doesn't heighten excitement further just because the excitement wasn't there in the first place. Well, the taboo obviously turns on the the man that she was talking to who raised this, but it doesn't turn her on. And she's not obligated to do it. That's one of the things Blackson and I uh, said when when we conversed. Tops are allowed to have limits, too. The guy wants to be dominated, wants certain things to happen. If you as the top aren't comfortable doing certain things that are on their list, you don't have to do those things. Absolutely. And I think something else that's relevant here is that the appeal of race play to someone who is a member of an oppressed group might be very different than someone who is part of a a majority group because the, the psychological take that I've heard on race play from other academics and researchers is sort of that this is a way that people who have been systematically oppressed can take control of that oppression in a limited context where it's consensual and where they are the ones who are in power. And so it might be more a form of empowerment for oppressed individuals to translate, um, you know, these types of broader social biases into this sort of erotic tool of power exchange. You can't exchange power with someone if you don't have the power in the first place is the takeaway from power exchange negotiations and power exchange relationships. You were given this power by someone who had it logically or they couldn't give it to you and it's temporary. And for a lot of people, this kind of not, not race play, but different kinds of dom sub sex is a way of purging those fears, sort of wallowing in them. And it can be a very cathartic experience for the you know, sub, uh, however they're turned on or whatever acts define submissiveness for them in that moment, um, they don't exist in that state 24-7. Right. And I think that that's very consistent with what I've heard, what I've read about the the people who do tend to be into this. Um, but I think you also <laughs> make a great point just to reiterate that when it comes to acting on sexual fantasies, don't do anything that you don't want to do that you're really uncomfortable with. And for people who are interested in exploring and engaging in some of these really taboo sorts of activities, I think it's extremely important to have very high levels of communication with your partner before, during, and after the act so that you're setting the appropriate boundaries, you have a safe word to exit the situation if it becomes really uncomfortable, and then you're doing a check-in with your partner afterwards so that if you're going to do this again, you can make sure that everyone is is comfortable with it. And I think that that's good advice for just acting on any type of sexual fantasy, but especially when they start to venture into this really taboo territory. Hello, Dan and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. I'm a straight 42-year-old man who has long had deep, unfulfilled fantasies and desires of being topped by a woman in various ways. I was in a 15-year relationship with my ex-wife and expressed many times my desire to be dominated sexually. She thought this was strange, but she did attempt to accommodate this, I think, about three times. These were very erotic experiences for me, but eventually she ridiculed this desire, saying that it was silly and she wasn't going to do it anymore. 
I left that marriage five years ago and have since been with about 60 women. Of those, there were maybe five or 10 that became intimate enough for me to carefully express these deeper desires. But I haven't come across even one that was willing or able to top. For the past six months, I've been in a passionate monogamous relationship with an amazing woman who is eight years older. Last week, she asked me if I had any fantasies. I told her that I want to be dominated by her sexually. She listened, but told me that she couldn't do that because she feared she would lose desire for me if she viewed me in a submissive role. A few days later, I found myself on FetLife trying to figure out where I might someday find someone to fulfill these desires, but I can't for the life of me figure out how to actually connect with women on that platform. I don't know if maybe there's some selection bias for me to only fight in submissive women. I've thought about it a lot, but I guess I've resigned myself to the reality that these desires just aren't going to be met in my life. So to answer your other caller's question, yes, there are definitely straight men who are stuck being tops. I still really like my sex life, but Dan, how do I seek out a woman who is open to exploring this aspect of my sexuality, at least part of the time. Please note that I am not suggesting that women are at fault for not meeting these needs of mine. I just want to know how to find the ones that would want to. I I hate it when people do this, when they they lay out a trap. Oh, tell me about your fantasies. Oh, that's your fantasy? Ew, yuck. I could never do that. It would destroy my feelings for you. Uh, That always kind of blows my mind. I I realize that for some people, you know, some people have fantasies that are uh, libido killers, as Emily Yofi once dubbed them when she was writing Dear Prudence, you know, finding out that the person you're with, I don't know, eats poop or something might make it impossible for you to relate to them sexually anymore. But when you just open the door and say, tell me about your wildest fantasies, and then somebody does, and you're like, oh, gross. I just think that's such an asshole move. Either you're open to hearing someone's wildest fantasies or you're not. And if you're not, don't ask. And that's precisely the reason why a lot of people are reluctant to share their fantasies in the first place is that they're afraid of being judged or shamed by their partners. That's something that really came out in uh, the work that I did for Tell Me What You Want, where when I looked at people who had and had not shared their sexual fantasies, those who hadn't reported this big sense of dread and fear and anxiety about what is my partner going to say? And then when you end up in that situation where you do disclose this thing that is very deeply personal about you, and then your partner judges you and shames you for it, it can be really psychologically devastating. Yeah, I I hear from people all the time who are psychologically devastated by that kind of reaction. I also sometimes hear from Kinky people who laid their kink cards on the table, as I like to say, and then got a kind of, you know, slightly negative reaction who are overreacting to that negative reaction. Because sometimes you you lay your kink cards on the table and your partner's like, what? They're just like taken aback. And you have to let them sort of process it for a little bit. Uh, and I sometimes think kink people, you know, people who are kinky and are afraid to disclose, uh, are nervous for the reasons that you mentioned. Sometimes they disclosed in a previous relationship and got shamed and now they just feel they can't disclose or are really reluctant to. Uh, but I always encourage people who are, you know, on the disclosing end of that bargain, you know, the presumed vanilla partner to whom the kink is being disclosed. Instead of saying, no, I don't want to say, oh, tell me more. Cause usually it's, Oh, that comes out as no, because of our sex negative culture and the way we're all sort of, you know, invested in this idea of sexual normality, particularly in our sexual partners, if we are vanilla ourselves. And we have a sort of knee jerk negative reaction that if we are allowed to sit with it for a minute and really think about it, we'll get past. But if the kinky person has sort of folded up into a ball on the floor and, you know, rolled away after that initial 
no, uh, that was really an O in disguise. It was just shock, not negativity. Then you don't have that opportunity to grow the relationship sexually together. You may cost yourself as a kinky person that opportunity. And I think that this speaks to the importance of helping people to better understand how do I communicate about my sexual fantasies with a partner in a way that sets it up for success rather than failure. And I think a big part of that is when it comes to sharing sexual fantasies, start low and go slow. Talk. Most people have a wide range of sexual fantasies and desires. And so start by sharing things at the more vanilla end of the spectrum. Use that as an opportunity to build up trust and intimacy so that when you get into the things that you're really into, uh, that you have that solid foundation and basis of, of trust and mutual respect. Because I think all too often people kind of jump in with their most wild, most adventurous and fantasy and their partner is just taken back a little bit by it. Uh, so it's, you know, kind of this process of starting slow, building intimacy and having that really good communication. But that doesn't guarantee that your partner is going to be into that thing that you're really into. And I think you're right that sometimes it's letting letting that marinate for a while uh, and, and letting your partner come to terms with it, get comfortable with it. And then thinking about what are some baby steps or, you know, sort of less intense ways that we could kind of maybe explore this without jumping into it at first. Right. And to remind yourself as the kinky person, like say you're into extreme forms of bondage, you've seen a lot of bondage porn and like the crazy stuff really appeals to you. I guarantee you the people in those like bondage pictures that are the most extreme, the most gear, the most immobilizing when they first did bondage, they were using neckties and just spread eagle to the bed that it wasn't uh, the deep end of the bondage pool at the start. Because it can't be, because most people who are into that kind of bondage don't have that gear at first. And so they do build very slowly toward what may be, you know, shared a lot on what had been Tumblr, now Twitter, uh, but doesn't happen as often as the milder forms of bondage, where you can start with a vanilla-ish partner, a partner who thinks they're vanilla, but has it in them to go there eventually. Maybe you can acquire the gear and get there, but at least at first you might want to slow your roll. As I like to say, it's baby steps to whips and chains. Uh, you know, um, and, and you know, here's the thing: most people have BDSM fantasies, regardless of gender and orientation. And most people have fantasized about both dominant roles and submissive roles. And so, you know, odds are that you and your partner are probably going to have at least some common interest in this area. There's all kinds of ways that you can explore this in very milder terms before you consider whether you're both into doing something more adventuresome. And when you're going to disclose your partner, you've presented vanilla. They assume you're vanilla. They've presented vanilla to you and you assume they're vanilla, but you're not vanilla. So they might not be vanilla either. I love it when someone lets me know that they did the big kink disclosure uh, and they took my advice and they didn't, you know, confess it like it was a, a cancer diagnosis. They weren't telling this tragic story that they have leukemia, but like it's a Christmas present. Look at this awesome thing about me. Look at the fun we get to have. Um, and the response from the partner who they thought was vanilla until they opened their mouths and shared their kink was me too. Those are my fantasies too. That kind of Yahtzee does happen every once in a while, but it hasn't happened for this caller. Why can't he find a dominant woman? What's he doing wrong? Is it his, you know, kinds of people he's attracted to? Is it where he's looking? Is it just that more women are subs than, than, than uh, are doms? What's the issue here? So I think there's probably a couple of things that could potentially be going on. Um, one is that maybe he's asking for too much 
too soon. And maybe it's just dialing it back and playing with more mild forms of, of dominance and submission first, and then kind of seeing where that goes and what everybody's comfort level is. But maybe it's also expanding your search for partners and getting plugged into the local BDSM scene if you're interested in something that is more at the uh, other end of the spectrum. So maybe it's finding a local BDSM lunch, which is a gathering of people who have kinky interests and finding those like-minded people. There are also you know, a range of websites. I know uh, the caller mentioned something about FetLife and that wasn't really working out for him, but there are lots of online communities like The Cage where people can go and connect with other people who are like them, maybe find local events in their area. So uh, I would suggest extending the search. And get online. I think that really helps. You know, there's the normal ways people, well, used to meet when we went to work in school and restaurants and bars. Uh, and, you know, you couldn't control for, you couldn't select when you're out in a bar for someone who had similar sexual interests. But if you get online, if you get on kinky dating apps or even vanilla dating apps and you disclose about yourself, if you include your sexual interests in your profile, you'll attract other people who you have that shared baseline with. And then you can see if you're compatible in other ways. Right. And I think that that's great advice. And, you know, something else I would mention here is that there are lots of guys who are interested in the idea of being submissive to a powerful woman or a powerful person of another gender. Uh, And this is why professional dominatrixes do pretty big business because that's one way that a lot of people find to express their desires and and act them out in the context of a relationship where their partner isn't comfortable with it or where they can't identify a partner who has those kinky interests. I know a lot of couples where the guy is interested in BDSM, has a terrific vanilla sex life with his long-term partner, occasionally sees a dominatrix with his partner's consent and awareness to to scratch this itch. You know, I once had a conversation with a woman and compared it to mowing the lawn. You don't like to mow the lawn. He wants the lawn mowed. Outsource that if you don't want to do it. And rather than ask him to go without. Can we talk about that for a second? This comes up a lot. You know, when the kinky person discloses to the vanilla person, particularly in the context of a long-term committed relationship, maybe they've already married, maybe they've already had children, often the response from the vanilla person is, if you love me, you won't do this, or we're not going to do this, you never get to do this. And people underestimate the power of sexual fantasies and desires and want to dismiss them as something trivial, and they're not trivial or easily dismissed, particularly by the person who has them. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that I find in my work is that about 80% of people say that they want to act on their favorite fantasy of all time at some point in their lives, but only about 20% have ever actually done that before. So a lot of these things that become our favorite fantasies, they're the go-to thing that gets us off. There's this big gap between fantasy and reality, and that, that speaks to how powerful and strong these desires are. But a lot of people, as you noted, find themselves in relationships where their partners want to control or rein in their fantasies. And, you know, there are different ways of, of dealing with this. You know, partially it might be maybe we need to do more at the outset to establish sexual compatibility and maybe not hide those types of fantasies for so long because that's where we often run into problems is not just because the partner is uncomfortable with the desire, but 
sometimes people wait years or decades before they actually share their fantasies with their partner. And then their partner feels this loss of trust. Like, why didn't you tell me about this sooner? Uh, and, and I feel like I don't even know you anymore. So I think more communication at the outset could be helpful uh, in terms of addressing some of these issues. More communication at the outset. I'm 100% for that. The fear people usually have, like they're dating someone, they're really into them, like three or six months have gone by. If I tell this person, you know, what my real sexual interests are, or, you know, the rest of my sexual interests are, if they're already being sexual and enjoying it, they might reject me. I might get dumped. And my response is always, you want to get dumped if you guys aren't sexually compatible. And so if you tell them that when you know you lay your king cards on the table and they leave, as painful as that might be, they weren't the right partner for you. So they've done you a kind of favor because then you can proceed to the munch and find somebody who's a better partner for you. Right. And what's the alternative but to then enter this relationship with somebody you think is great but who you're not compatible with? And how do you think that's going to end or play out? It's likely to lead to a, a series of conflicts and uh, sexual disappointment and maybe one partner ends up cheating on the other and so you know it's 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 a balancing act in terms of what it is that you really want how important this fantasy is to you and whether it's something that you really want to make a reality or if just sharing and talking about the fantasy is enough because that is for some people just kind of using that as a form of dirty talk but that's not enough for everyone how important this fantasy is to you, I think, is something people often underestimate when they're young and maybe partnering up uh, and pairing off. You know, it's not just the you know vanilla partner who you know doesn't get it and dismisses it. It's sometimes the kinky person dismisses like how important this actually is to act on this at some point in your life, and people will dismiss their own sexual fantasies. And, and deprioritize realizing them or finding people, you know, finding a partner who celebrates their sexuality and wants to go there with them and who wants their partner to go to their places with them in return. And I would, I just would encourage people who have kinks not to fear disclosing them, but also not to downplay them to yourself, not to underestimate how important these are to you and that the importance of them and acting them is only going to grow over time. Kinks don't evaporate. Yeah. And it's also true, and this is something that's borne out in my research, the people who are open about their sexual fantasies and who act on them are the ones who report the most satisfying sex lives, the happiest relationships, the fewest problems with sexual functioning. And it's because they're getting what they really want out of sex and they're able to add this constant element of novelty and newness and excitement to the relationship, which, you know, is actually the, the single biggest thing that destroys desire in a lot of relationships is that people stop doing new things and sex becomes very routine and people aren't sharing what it is that they really want. So by getting more in touch with those fantasies and desires and sharing them and acting on them, there are all kinds of potential sexual and relationship benefits that we can tap into. Dr. Justin Lay Miller, research fellow at the Kinsey Institute, author of Tell Me What You Want, which is a terrific book, and it is just out in paperback. If you haven't already read it, please pick it up and read it. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Justin. It's always a blast. Thanks for having me, Dan. Always a pleasure. Hi, Dan. This is a 29-year-old queer cis poly woman living on the East Coast, and my question to you and to any listeners who might have an answer to this is... How do you know? How do you know that this person that you have found and, say, spent three years with and are very compatible with 
is the right person to have kids with. As a poly person, I'm not talking about picking the one person I'm going to have sex with for the rest of my life, but there is an inherent commitment that comes with having kids with someone. How do you differentiate between a red flag and just a different personality that you're going to have with anyone? I think I found the right person, but why do I still have nights where I wake up in cold sweat thinking, what if I'm making a huge mistake? What if I'm picking the wrong person? Am I making my future self miserable? So, yeah. How did you know, Dan? How did I know? I didn't know. I didn't know for sure. I made my best guess. And that's really all you can do here. You can make your best guess. And you're with this person. You like them. You want to parent with them. You want that kind of lifelong connection with them. Of course, that's a, a nerve-wracking thing. You know, you're standing at a fork in the road, and it's a very consequential fork. It's not just I live in Cleveland or Columbus. It's this is the rest of my life. This person is going to be in my life for the rest of my life. The person that we create together for having a biological child is going to be in our lives for the rest of our lives. I am linked to, welded to this person. Even if the relationship ends, I am welded to this person as a co-parent for the rest of my life. That's a consequential decision. You're right to be nervous about guessing wrong. But ultimately, you just have to make your best guess. You mentioned conflict. There's sometimes conflict in your relationship with this person that you're thinking about parenting with. Well, there's conflict in every relationship. When we urge people to end relationships and mention conflict, we always, those of us who are in the advice industrial complex, we always qualify conflict with high conflict. High hyphen conflict. High conflict relationships are the conflict-ridden relationships that must end, where there's just too much pain, drama, arguing. It's constant conflict. And two people who are contemptuous of each other, or one person in a relationship with somebody else who's contemptuous of them, those are the relationships where conflict is the deal breaker. So when you scrutinize your relationship, don't say, oh, there's conflict here, there's conflict there, therefore we can't have kids together. We don't have that kind of future. I don't want to be welded to this person for the rest of my life. Ask yourself, is it a high conflict relationship? Is it toxic? Is there contempt? Do we love and enjoy and support each other even if sometimes we want to murder each other, figuratively speaking? There's sometimes conflict. How do we resolve that conflict? And kids are conflict engines. You will be in conflict about your kid all the time. So conflict will be a part of your life and will be a part of your relationship. And conflict is hardwired into parenting. It's a really weird zap parenting puts on your head because your partner thinks, I want to send him to this school, and you may have never given schools a thought, and you leap to the opposite position and begin to argue it, like Democrats and Republicans. Like instinctively, there's something about parenting together where you want to make sure that the two of you are making the right choices, which means every choice must be interrogated almost you know, endlessly or exhaustively before you ultimately make the right decision. And one of these sort of conflict resolving tricks of being parents together as a couple and not letting those conflicts about parenting consume your relationship is to acknowledge, even if you're having an argument about what kind of food, where to live, what kind of school to send them to, you know, religious upbringing or spare them that bullshit, 
that you just want the best for the kid together. You're on the same page. Both of you want the best and you're going to determine together what the best for that kid is. And the more your own ego gets invested in the, your preferred choice, even if your preferred choice is the you know, opposite of what your partner wanted and you leapt to it without thinking just to make sure that you're making the right choice. If you can not get your ego wrapped up in it and if you lose, not be mad – then the conflict that's hardwired into parenting will be less poisonous. It'll become less toxic over time. But there will be conflict. If you want a conflict-free relationship, marry a toaster, duct tape a dildo to it, and adopt a dog. Hi, Dan. I'm a 40-year-old cis-hetero woman who got out of a really unhappy 12-year relationship about a year ago and who is uh, bravely, excitedly, terrifyingly embarking on a new, although temporarily long distance relationship with someone I've been good friends with for 20 years. The sex in my last relationship was pretty vanilla when it did happen because the ongoing emotional strife in our relationship really killed the hell out of my once wild libido. Now that I'm exploring this new relationship via phone, text, and sex, I'm starting to realize how sexually immature I've allowed myself to become. My old friend slash new partner is teaching me about the pretty fabulous world of sexting and phone sex, and through that has revealed some fun, kinky goodness that I'm really enjoying. My problem is this. We both edge on the sub side, but he is killer at playing the dom, and now I want some schooling on dom techniques, too. I really want to reciprocate the dom-based pleasure and excitement he gives me, and he's conveyed that he would like a little more role switching as well. What would you suggest as a good resource for a little dom for dummies? An audiobook or webinar would be fantastic. I know that sounds lazy, but it would be really cool. You say you both have subby tendencies, and yet this guy is dominating you. One of the truisms of the kink world is that many of the best doms, sometimes people would say all of the doms, including the best ones, are subs at heart. They have a sub-fantasy life, a subs-imagination, which is how they know what to do to a sub, you know, a sub they click with and turn on. They're basically often doing to the sub what they wish there was a dominant out there doing to them. So you can easily turn around on him the things he's doing to you, uh, you know, after some negotiation and getting his consent. You can do to him some of the dom stuff that he's been doing to you that's worked for you. Odds are that that exact stuff would work very well for him or something similar to it or something that riffs on it or vibes on it. That's a little vague, but without me being able to subpoena your long distance partner and put him under oath and pick his brain about what works for him, it's the best place to start. If you want a little reading uh, and there's an audiobook version available of it too, so you can do a little listening. The new topping book by Dossie Easton and Janet Hardy is a classic in the BDSM Dom sub sort of space in the BDSM community and it is a classic and it is often recommended and has been for decades by people like me because it is terrific. It is a great primer or primer. I'm never sure how to pronounce that word for people who are beginning to explore dom sub sex and there's a bottoming version, the new bottoming book, the bottoming version uh, of that book as well. And you and your new friend could order both, read them together and then have conversations about the book and what you're learning about each other and what you're learning about DSX from uh, Dossie and Janet's books. And I think that would help as well. Hey, Dan, male in my 40s, living in the Midwest. I feel like 
no vote in this upcoming election is a vote for Trump because Trumpers are not going to sit on their asses. They're going to go fucking vote. My girlfriend's parents are Trumpers. Uh, luckily for me, when dealing with them, that topic has never came up. But my girlfriend says she's not going to vote, probably because she's torn between what her parents do and what I'm going to do, which would be to vote for fucking anybody but Trump that's a Democrat. Now, if she's not going to vote at all, like I said, that is a fucking vote for Trump. Is it right for me to question my relationship with her if that is her ideals? I'm incredibly torn about even bringing this up with her because she's super cool. She likes sex. We've been together for a couple years. But if that's your ideology and you're just going to let this fucker slide... I just can't wrap my head around that. And I also heard parents live out of state. I would love to go to their house at some point, but I do not want to do it while Trump is in office, and there's no fucking way I can get away with not going there for another four years. I just don't know what to do. I need some advice. I'm a naturally suspicious person. Actually, I'm kind of unnaturally suspicious at times, and – I'm a little suspicious about your girlfriend's excuse or what she's told you about why she's not going to vote at all because her parents live out of state. Even if her parents lived in state, even if she lived with her parents, it's still a secret ballot. And if she wants to have Trump out of office, but wants to avoid conflict with her Trump humping family, she can lie to them. She can vote for whoever she cares to vote for and, let them assume that she voted the way they would like her to vote or she can if keeping the peace with your Trump humping relatives is more important than telling your truth. She can actively lie to them and tell them she voted for Trump, even though she voted for Biden. So the fact that she's telling you, she's just not going to vote at all to avoid an easily avoided conflict with her parents, a conflict that she would have to go out of her way to manufacture Makes me wonder whether she's voting for Trump. Makes me wonder whether she disagrees with her family as vociferously as you disagree with her family and I disagree with her family. And, you know, I wouldn't put my dick in a Trump supporter and I would be very careful about it, particularly at this moment, whether or not that was something that I was doing without realizing it. I think you should have a conversation with your girlfriend about what she's thinking and her rationale for not voting at this moment of crisis when every, I want to say right thinking, correct thinking, every reasonable, rational, sane person needs to turn out at the polls this November and vote this motherfucker out of office. Yeah, I would have that conversation with this person that I was sticking my dick in, with this person I liked and respected. And I would have that conversation in a cool, <laughs> passionless way drawing them out, and if they were thinking about voting for Trump, arguing with them about that to the best of my abilities. Hopefully not in a high-conflict way, but in a reasonable conflict way. 
So those are those are my suspicions, and maybe they're unfounded, and maybe you know your girlfriend's parents are assholes. Well, they're voting for Trump, and they're Trump supporters, so by definition, by default, they're assholes. And she has just been conditioned, after dealing with them her entire life, to do everything that she can not to create more angst or conflict in that relationship than is hardwired into it by the fact that her parents are assholes. And maybe just hearing from you that they never have to know how you vote. I never have to know how you vote, but I would like you to vote and I would implore you to vote for Biden. And you can tell your parents what they want to hear. Or you can tell your parents nothing at all, or you can tell your parents you didn't vote. But if I am your partner and we are in love and we are living a state away from your fucking parents, I would hope you would respect me enough to tell me the truth. And if the truth is that she's voting for Trump, I would encourage you to break up with her. If she's with her family, but afraid to tell you not with you and afraid to tell her family about how she's voting. Yeah. I would uh, end that relationship. Good luck. All right. Before we get to your response calls, let's read some of your tweets. Call your bluff tweets. If that fake Dan Savage is right in that Findom was the kink that emerged from the 2008 recession, then I'm fairly sure spitting and kissing as kinks will be more of a thing over the next several years. Yes, I absolutely think that's going to happen or that's going to continue to happen. People spitting in each other's mouths seem to become a big thing on porn and a big thing in relationships over the last five or six years. And I'm sure now that ingesting somebody else's saliva seems so dangerous and transgressive and taboo that once we can do that again, yeah, we're going to want to do that again. We're going to want to drink each other's spit so bad. Char Mays tweets, my daughter was at a loss for what to get me for my birthday when all the stores were closed. She put a bow on my iPad and got me a six-month subscription to the Magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast, the gift that keeps on giving. Thank you so much, daughter of Char Mays, for getting your mom a subscription to the Magnum Savage Lovecast for her birthday and happy birthday, mom. And finally, Kawhi Philip tweets, I love when at fake Dan Savage says that verse kids rule the world. It's a truth of the highest order. Please say there will be t-shirts. I want one in every color. I'm not bringing out another line of t-shirts myself. I just got out of the t-shirt business when we closed down ITMFA. But if somebody else wants to bring out a verse kids rule the world line of t-shirts, you have my support and my permission. All right. If you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to include the hashtag Savage Lovecast and now your response calls. Hi there, Dan. Just a comment on uh, the July 14th Savage Lovecast. 25-year-old gay guy was concerned because his boyfriend is 39 and the age difference was kind of freaking him out. I have a story like that from my past that, that when it happened to me, I didn't really freak out. I'm in my late 50s now, but when I was 23, I met a man who was 40, and um, we were together for six years, and that relationship led to a lot of great things in my life, and I don't regret a minute of it. Um, This was the late 80s and early 90s, and uh, my first boyfriend, uh, who was 17 years older than I was, he passed away due to complications of AIDS, so you just never know where something is going to lead. Don't be afraid of the age difference. You love him. He loves you. Even if it doesn't last forever, do it. Hey, Dan, I called about the bear week question in Provincetown. I just wanted to let you know that things turned out super well. I was driving distance. I was able to stay in a cabin by myself with about five friends nearby. 
the five of us hung out together, uh, no sexual activity, and the town was amazing. They had great social distancing, mandatory mask 24-7 on the main drag, uh, with it being enforced by police and these people called ambassadors that handed out masks. The restaurants all had great dividers and the shopping places really seemed to pay attention to social distancing and limits. So thanks for your great advice. And I had a wonderful time and I hope other people did too. I wanted to talk in regarding to your caller in 716. I too was in a relationship with a partner who spiraled out of control over the course of a year or so. We were together for almost 10 years and he would get depressed every once in a while. Things started getting more and more crazy, for lack of a better word. And it started taking a toll on me. And unfortunately, it resulted in us getting divorced. And in the months leading up to it, my mental health was taking a huge toll. Uh, it was really hard for me to enjoy myself when he wasn't able to enjoy anything. And I just wanted to say, stay strong. Do everything Dan said. I did almost the exact same thing. Make sure he has a safe place to land financially. Make sure that he's with family and people who care. And uh, life moves on, man. And place now, he's in a much better place now. And in general, it was the best decision I could have made. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Better yet, use the voice memo app on your phone to record your question. Better sound quality. And email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. Congrats to Ryan and James, listeners of the Savage Lovecast, who got married this weekend. Congrats, guys. Quick programming note, our upcoming Savage Love live stream, which was supposed to be later this month, we've had to postpone it. We will be rescheduling it as soon as we can, and we will let you know when that is going to happen, when we're going to do our next Savage Love live stream. Due to overwhelming demand, we've extended our round of Hump's Greatest Hits Volume 1 for two more weeks. Join us this Saturday, July 25th, and next Friday, July 31st, and you can catch some of our favorite dirty movies from 2005 through 2018. Just go to humpfilmfest.com to get your tickets. We've also extended the deadline for this year's Hump to December 4th, so you have more time to make a dirty movie yourself. Go to humpfilmfest.com slash submit and find out more. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Dr. Justin Lay Miller on Twitter at Justin Lay Miller. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. We'll all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading and registering the book.